Okay, we're recording. All right, hello, welcome to Dark Habits and a mode of our podcast. I am Spencer, and with me is uh, Joel, as always. As always, yeah. but yeah. But more importantly, mostly. The, mostly, but more importantly, Adriana uh, Gober. I almost say Goober every time I ask your last name. Gober <laughs> returns. That's talk it. about. Talk about um, the wonderful RWF uh, again, because he has like what fifty movies, forty movies, a lot. Yeah, I mean, depending on who you ask, it's like between forty to forty-two. Everybody seems to have their own system for counting. Right. If he had like a TV thing or extended right. series, like thing. I, I count not just his theatrical releases, but also. His TV movies, miniseries, and his televised plays, but not everybody does, so. Yeah. So, um, this was supposed to be talking about two things, Chinese Roulette and um, Whitey, but realistically, with Chinese Roulette, I don't know what I'd say about it after watching it. I don't hate it. I don't love it. I'm kind of in the middle. Uh... Joel, you you have a different opinion of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we're gonna do an episode on that, but uh, we yeah, can, we can talk about it a little bit. But yeah, I kind of uh, dropped the ball. Like I misunderstood. I thought we were doing three recording sessions, so I did not rewatch Chinese Roulette. Uh, yeah, so that's on that's on me. Well, don't worry about it. We have what Whitey is enough of. <laughs> what yeah yeah i mean first off I'll, I'll say i don't like this movie i don't like whitey it's this <laughs> i i i don't really like it either i do think it's um really fantastic from a technical standpoint the look of the film the way it's shot the blocking uh the set design the costuming i love all of that um but the rest of the film I find very difficult to sort of get to grips with. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and uh, for, oh, I'm sure oh, we'll I get for, into it, but... Yes, I forgot to do this. Um, uh, this episode is being recorded... Where is it? The... Um, in the email, Cribs uh, put something about like the today and why I should bring it some I should bring up uh oh here it is uh he said today the day that we're uh, that today is the anniversary of uh, Margaret uh, Carsonson's death well she died today oh it was today yeah, it's okay, a weird twist of fate that we our okay. rescheduled recording for this happened to be on the day that she died. Oh, okay. I mis- misunderstood that email he put. Anyway, yeah, he he t- he said I should I should mention that. I'm not sure who that is. I'm sure I've seen her. Uh, she what? she is the she is Petra in The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. She also stars in Martha. Um, she's in a ton of other Fassbender films. Um, okay. She is one of my favorite Fassbender actors. But she's in Chinese Roulette. Is she the wife? Yes. She is. Uh, she's having an affair 
she she's one of the main characters who is it uh cheating on her husband and of course he is cheating on her uh yeah, yeah. and there's all these co- convoluted uh, relationship dynamics but yeah she is one of the stars of chinese roulette okay uh, yeah i mean like this is a chinese roulette like for me was just like it felt like pasolini ish but without the like i've described it before but with pasolini i get like it's i find his movies like intellectually and like politically thrilling and exhilarating even if i don't get everything which is most of the time there's still this excitement of like i think about things in a different sure. way and i got that vibe from chinese Gillette a little bit except it was like what if it's not exciting and just kind of like artsy fartsy <laughs> just to the artsy fartsy uh, well that that artsy fartsiness is what i find exciting about it like michael bauhaus he has he does this very balletic cinematography in that movie the camera is constantly moving uh, and and the blocking in that film is fantastic as well, um, but yeah, I, I I I get the sense that I like Chinese roulette a lot more than either of you. But uh, yeah, Joel, do you want to say your opinion of Chinese roulette? Shallow and pedantic. No, I, <laughs> I don't. Um, I don't. Uh, I mean, if we're not actually going to talk about the movie, I feel weird saying it. But yeah, okay. like it was not not my cup of tea. In fact, it was kind of um, it, it was like somebody gave me a cup of tea and then I I took it and went back to the kitchen and poured it over that person's head and said, "Never, never wow. do this to me again." Not to say that it's like an unwatchable mess or anything like that. It just like it's perfectly watchable, and I'm sure it would it appeals to a lot of other people. For some reason, for me, I just was like, if the purpose of this film is to make me wish that not only were every character in this movie dead, but I was also dead, it's it's very successful. Well, I mean, Fassbender definitely wasn't overly concerned with whether or not his characters were likable to the audience i'll say that uh but yeah i mean that's fair i guess it's it's not a likability thing either it's it's like a because like there are people i hate that i don't wish are dead like that i think are awful people and stuff like that it's it was um you know the, the whole thing is like a a soulless vapid you know, group of people all among each other who never ever say what the hell they actually mean, except for <clears throat> I think one or two briefly vulnerable moments. Right? I don't even. The daughter's playing some game that could easily be solved by putting her into a closet. <laughs> it's like oh, we don't. Like, you, your child is doing some crazy shit, and uh, she's getting away with it because I guess she gets whatever she said. She did say she gets whatever she wants, and it's, uh, yeah, at a certain point. Uh, yeah. There was, like, the whole possible subplot about, like, there's a secret. There's only two of us left. Did you see so-and-so died? Like, what? What, what were they talking about? Um, yeah, uh, yeah it, it, like watching that was like, is this what it feels like to people? This is what Pasolini feel like to people who don't like Pasolini. 
I got past Lee vibes from Whitey more than I got from uh, oh. Chinese roulette. Yeah. Well, there. I mean, I think there's an element of Whitey that you could that it feels uh, inspired by Teorama in some yes, way. Exactly so, yeah. what I was thinking. Anyway, Except not 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 sexy. You don't have Terrence Stamp. No. A fucking everyone. What do you mean? All kinds of people are kissing each other in this movie. It's not. But sexy, is it sexy though? though? <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, when I watch Terrorama, it's just like, man, I wish I was a part of that family. That's uh, <laughs> that's, <laughs> I, that's not. <laughs> nope. <laughs> uh, but it's it's young Terrence Stamp. Come on. A beautiful, beautiful man. And, yeah, and he okay. and that and that and that and you'll have a political and spiritual revelation about yourself after the good sex. Yeah, but I'd have to be part of the family. You're talking about the family. <laughs> uh, yeah, but the the sex will free you from the family. I don't know. I don't know. They have the same ending: Whitey and Teorama walking off into the desert. I think. Yeah. Isn't that how Teorama ends? Um, it's the dad screaming. Um, so and he's, from city and he's on uh, Mount Etna because it's oh. like the black ash sand thing ah. that you see in a lot of past lady. Think that's Mount Etna. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, see because you remember how I felt about Teorama when I initially watched it, mm-hmm. and you can hear my opinions about it on the podcast because it wasn't until later when I really had time to sit with it that I was like, actually, I think I think that movie was really good. Um, and I don't know if that's going to happen with Whitey. I assume it's not. But th- that's the way yeah. I was feeling this time. I was like, what? What? Who? Why? Where? Oh, what? No. Ah. So do you guys want me to uh, read the email from um, uh, chunk ribs about Whitey in sure. Chinese roulette. Did he say anything about our Fox episode? Uh, no. Okay. I I was just curious if we got any feedback on that. If I can ask him if he listened, but I have, I don't know if he listens or not. But uh, but anyways. Okay, so I'm gonna cut some stuff out just for speed. Uh, Fastbender was dizzyingly prolific with such an astonishing masterpiece to miss ratio that shouldn't be surprising that there are a few whiteys in in there, which might be a standout in almost any other director's filmography, but by RWF standards is more of an interesting misfire. While a Cirque in the Sand spaghetti western melodrama like like it would be right up his alley, it feels like he's still pointing out point out of that early career experimentation, hampered even more by his initially awkward move into color photography. Parentheses, Merchant of Four Seasons is the first movie that feels like pure Fassbender film, in the first gorgeous collaboration with Bauhaus. I always pair it in my mind with Russ Meyer's Black Snake, his Blaxploitation Western, which came out a couple years after Whitey, and also finds its director weirdly out of his comfort zone. While I love uh, Gunther uh, Kaufman, he's not quite lean man uh, quality. He's better in Dick Miller sized doses. Right. Um, and oh, what? I agree with pretty much all of that. Although, what what was it that he said about 
Bauhaus? Uh, where is it? This was the first. No, where is it? Um, he said Merchant of Five or Four Seasons was the first collaboration with Bauhaus. Okay. I thought that's what he said. I'm going to have to be like an asshole, but that is not actually true. This movie, Whitey, was their first collaboration. Oh. And then uh, Bauhaus also shot um, Beware of a Holy Whore, which, which came after Whitey and was inspired by uh, the disastrous production of Whitey. Um, but yeah, uh, Whitey was the first film that Bauhaus uh, came aboard for. Um, Uli Lamel had, sh- had shot can't remember if it was a film or a television show uh but it was called um your tenderness and Bauhaus uh lends that production and Lamel thought that his work as a DP was really good so he suggested him to Fassbender and and Lamel brought Bauhaus along to Spain to shoot Whitey hmm Take that, Cribs. Take that. <laughs> no. <laughs> and uh, uh, trying to use roulette. I get back to email. That snap went to the screen. But Chinese Roulette is a movie I think is as great as Four Seasons, Fox and His Friends, or Marriage of Maria Braun. It's its most also- underrated next to Satan's Brew. Never heard of that one. Uh, Kent Jones once wrote that, that if Fassbender's photography indeed made up a house, Brew would be the plumbing and roulette would be the wiring, which I think he meant dismissively, but actually seems appropriate. You see all the wires exposed in this film with secrets laid laid bare and psychological warfare in abundance. Angela is my favorite Fassbender villain, a scowling bad seed of a wasp that, that with inconvenient truths in her stinger. Bridget Mira is always fantastic, usually as a sympathetic villain, no victim, sympathetic victim, but here the carrier of resentment and abuse. Machamero makes for an even louder mute than uh, Erm Herman and Petra von Kant. It's possible the most, possibly the most quietly tense film ever made. Every scene ice cold yet charged like the gun that ine- inevitably goes off. Man, he has such a way with words. I'm an inarticulate like drooling mess um but now I, I i totally agree with him you don't have to add this though uh mm-hmm. the one other thing i wanted to mention is that i had to look it up because i was like i thought so but i wasn't sure but like the merchant of four seasons is actually shot by dietrich Lohman. ah anyway well. uh sorry john <laughs> i love you <laughs> and all yeah. of your thoughts never gonna live this down <laughs> nope yeah, but uh, hopefully he can be in the world without a wire. Because uh, yeah. given his love of Fassbender, I feel like that would be a perfect person to add on here. Okay, so... Uh, why, why didn't I ever got to the Angela part? My first instinct was, I gotta make a who's a boss joke. But I have to get through <laughs> free. <laughs> uh, I think this will come out after this, but there's a point in the Madam Satan episode where I make a very awkward to the boss joke and it takes uh, a few seconds for Bobby and Alexandria to realize I made a joke about who's the boss. <laughs> but I kept it. There's a character in that named Angela. Yes. Anyway. Yeah. 
Yeah. So yeah, Whitey, nineteen seventy-one. Uh, man. So we should probably start with a plot synopsis. Yeah, Joel, you watched it the most recently. What What is this movie? Oh my gosh, why would you? <laughs> I I mean, I could do it if you don't. <laughs> no, no. It's I, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the description that uh, I was just looking at on Letterboxd. Um, there you go. Whitey is the mulatto butler of the dysfunctional Nicholson family in the American Southwest in 1878. The father, Ben Nicholson, has an attractive young wife, Catherine, and two sons by a previous marriage. And this is what it says. In the, this is not me making commentary. The homosexual Frank and the R-word Davy. I'm not saying... Maybe not the best plot synopsis to read. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Joel. Whitey tries to carry out all their orders, however demeaning, until various, uh, various, yep, this is badly written, various of the family members ask him to kill some of the others. Yeah, that's, I mean, like, yeah. if we had to, like, squeeze the story out of it, I guess that's kind of what's going on, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a few other things I think that are important to mention. One is that the patriarch, Ben Nicholson, uh, informs the family that he is dying from a terminal illness, but... He's, it's actually a ruse to test their loyalty, and that is kind of what sets off these series of deceptions and betrayals. And then the other th important thing to note is that Whitey, as all of this is happening, Whitey is carrying on an affair with a sex worker, Hannah, played by Hannah Shagula, uh, who sings at the local saloon, and she finds a job out in Chicago, and she wants Whitey to leave with her, but he's torn between her and this family and she's trying to convince him that you know the family is terrible and he doesn't owe them a damn thing i somehow miss the fact that she had a job waiting for her in chicago that's yeah i miss that too but honestly so that's I in the dialogue at some point i kind of okay. checked out a little bit in the second <laughs> half it just, just reached a point of like i appreciate the honesty <laughs> like uh, gunter's is Cribs is right. Like he's not a lean man. No. There's a well, stretches where it's like he's trying to look meanfully at, at people. And it's like no. Yeah, not, I think it's him. important to note that Fassbender was like sexually obsessed with Gunter Kaufman. He was like one of the great loves of Fassbender's life, and he had been trying to uh, find a way to uh, like give Kaufman like a big leading role and i guess this was his solution um and 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 kaufman is in other films of his but he does like this is by far like the most prominent role that he was given by fassbender yeah it's uh i'm going with this are you insinuating that one of the reasons why most of the scenes felt so incredibly stiff is because that actor is not a very good actor. Well, in Cribs' email, he said, Gunter works better and uh, Dick Miller doses. Yeah, like, I think a great example is the third generation. He plays uh, a supporting role in that movie, and I think he's great in that movie. 
and plays to his strengths. Um, I don't really think he is a leading man type of actor. Although Fassbender obviously disagreed in the case of this movie. Um, it's almost like that reverse trope of the director hiring a starlet because he either is sleeping with her or wants to. Yeah. Wasn't Fassbender dating Gunter at the time? Uh, I wouldn't say dating. Like, uh, So Gunter Kaufman was married <laughs> at the time. He had a mm-hmm. wife and kids. Uh, oh. But he was sleeping with Fassbender. But I think it was not really reciprocated very much on his end. He kind of liked the perks of being with Fassbender. You know, Fassbender mm-hmm. would lavish him with gifts. He bought him several uh, very expensive cars. I can't remember if they were like Ferraris or Porsches, but he kept crashing them and Fassbender would buy him new ones. Uh, so he really liked the benefit of being involved with Fassbender, but he was not really committed in the way that Fassbender would have liked. Mm. Oh, okay. And they had a very like... tempestuous relationship. There was a lot of drama, a lot of fighting. There was a oh. lot of drama on the set of this movie, not just between them, but, you know, pe- like financing issues and, you know, people sleeping with each other. And uh, fighting, and I don't know if you've seen Beware of a Holy Whore, but uh, not yet. that that kind of gives a lot of it gives you an idea of what the behind the scenes chaos was like on Whitey. Oh, yeah, uh, Kaufman. Which I, when I looked up like what other movies he did, I came across the <laughs> his prison sentence that happened later in life. Uh, that was yes, real, that yeah, would that make was... for an interesting movie. That oh, whole story. Uh, r- really would. Which is it worth getting into? You think? Uh, I don't know. Like, I, I would mean, just say to. go to his Wikipedia page. There's a whole section on it. Yeah, he it it's it's a lot. But he got to have uh, an acting career after his prison sentence. So, uh, yeah, he he died uh eleven years ago, but he still. But he still was an actively had a career, like basically since like Fastbender's era. Yeah, he started Fastbender, and like he had a steady career, you know, all, all until mm-hmm. his death. He, despite oh, he, going, no, despite the murder charge. He also sang the opening song of this uh, of this film that plays. Uh, yeah, I was wondering that because like some of it. I know a little bit of German, but listening to us like it is is definitely came off like someone who knows some English, but not that much English. Yeah, well, Fassbender wrote the lyrics. Oh, okay, I believe it's like because um... there's a part where he's like, "Let's let my, my bro does," which he's trying. Oh, it's like it's, it feels like it's half between brooder and brother, which and yeah, there's we... a part where he says "God," where he says "Got," which is like okay, it's like. You clearly don't know English that well. You know some English. You know enough English that it's similar to German, and that's and like that's about it. Did I mean was it like? See, I I should have paid attention to it. I remember being somebody sh- shooting two people or shot twice or something. Um, yeah. Well, but, at the end sur- of the film, Whitey shoots the entire family. He does. Yes, there's how other people get shot story. over the course of the movie as well, but that's uh, like the big climactic event. Like, 
He just That's takes out the entire family. And like, then he mercy kills Davy and then takes uh, off with Hannah. Yeah, I felt bad for that horse in the scene where Davy gets it, but I also thought it was actually like most of the time somebody gets shot in a movie, animals don't react. It's like, that's not what would happen. The horse would freak out. Um, <laughs> yeah. But Davy, I thought it was interesting, Davy being the first person to ask him, I, I believe the first person to ask him to kill um, the father of the family. Well, I think you're, uh, you're, you're confusing the brothers. Davy is the one who is developmentally disabled. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't yeah, that speak. took me a that took me a while to realize I put him as, as a feral child for most of it until I realized, uh, I think it was the, with Regan of the Whale, like, oh, that's why he doesn't talk. I didn't realize that. About... What's the other brother's name? Frank. Uh, that's so, Uli Lamel's character. So Frank was the one that, like, um, went out to the barn and was talking to him? Yes, so there's two scenes in the barn with the brothers. The first one is with Frank, and that is when it's the scene that you were referring to when Frank tries to uh, man- manipulate um, Whitey into killing the father, and he attempts he t- attempts to convince him to do so again later on. But then there's another scene in the barn that's like one of my favorite scenes in the in the film, where Whitey is alone with Davy. Uh, brushing the uh, a horse and they have this like very tender moment where whitey um like kisses him and uh you kind of get get a sense for you know the fact that whitey has a lot of affection for davy in particular um but yeah that's uh i forget what uh what point i was going to be making but Uh, uh, we've just i was confused about right uh, yeah so Frank the, is the one who asks, initially asked Whitey to kill the father. Well, I guess that makes sense. Frank Frank's a character. He sure is. There's that scene later on that is a total homage to uh, Visconti's The Damned, where uh, Whitey enters a bedroom and Frank is uh, lounging on the bed in lingerie. He's mm-hmm. got like these stockings on and, and uh like a corset and that's when he he tries to essentially seduce whitey in like this latch last ditch effort to like get him convince him to kill the father and it doesn't work yeah uh, he he looked like uh i mean he was just like frankenfurter do you think that's a <laughs> Somebody got that idea from him, but no, probably the other movie you were talking about. Yeah, well, Fassbender really loved The Damned, and there's that infamous scene in that movie where Helmut Berger is kind of... Rest He's, like, doing... What would I say? I'm I'm trying to, like, think of how to describe this. It's like an homage to uh, Marlena Dietrich in... Mm -hmm. What is it? The Blue Angel? Is that the name of the movie? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's like a drag performance. And so. Oh, oh um, you mean the, tu- the tuxedo one? No, no, no. That's Morocco. Oh. Okay. Um, but yeah, Helmut Berger does this drag performance. And uh, that the scene in Whitey with Uli Lamel is definitely 
a reference to that. Okay. Yeah, Helen Berger, he was in Salon Kitty, which we talked about last season. And uh, there's a tidbit from a, um, on the Blu-ray, there's an interview with um, uh, uh, Tinto Brass. And uh, he's, he said, uh, basically, that <laughs> they said Helen Berger was too small for nude scenes, so he shaved them so he would look bigger. <laughs> But, but wow. it didn't work. <laughs> That's uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, can't believe he's doing helmet dirty like that. Yeah, Tinto has no filter. It's it's sometimes very funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Slon Kitty is awesome. If, if you've listened, and you haven't seen it. It's uh, it's what um, Caligula was supposed to be. But Caligula, you know, it's well documented. That that's not a Tinto Brass movie. And he just released a statement re- recently, like tearing into that new cut of Caligula that's coming out, or I think it played a can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I'm curious about it, but like, also I'm surprised he commented because like he, his memory is starting to go. Like he has a health problems right now. Has had a lot of health problems over last. He's over ninety, so it's going to happen. Yeah, I'm surprised he was uh, like aware enough to do that. Based off what I've read about, like what his recent years. But uh, all right, so uh, um before we get into some of like the thornier aspects of this movie uh i just want to take uh some time to talk about uh the look of the film because after we recorded our episode on fox and his friends you know as soon as like we wrapped i realized that we didn't talk about the cinematography or the production design, which are two elements, like two fantastic elements of that film that really elevated to something great. And the cinematographer and production designer are the same people on this film. Hmm. Uh, Michael Bauhaus, who is one of my favorite cinematographers, and Kurt Robb, who also appears in the movie very briefly as the pianist in the saloon. Um, but I think... Um, Although I agree with John's comments that this movie is a misfire, I think, uh, as I said earlier, uh, the the technical elements of the film, uh, the cinematography, the blocking, the set design, costumes, uh, they're all fantastic. Yeah, I, 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 the, it's like everything, like the aesthetically look of it, I love. I like the like the ghoulish, weird makeup that the yes. family gets as they get more and more sick, and it it goes from feeling like uh, an awkward western to feeling like oh, this is like Edgar Allan. This is like um, how was it? Uh, Fall of House of Usher, like vague disease, vague terminal disease thing, where it's like it it, it doesn't matter what it is. All you need to know is that like they're sick and they're dying and they're yeah. gonna get more more and more sick. Well, I think it's also some like there's some symbolism involved. Like it's kind of on the nose, but as as they just seem to be as things become more and more corrosive when within the family, they just get progressively whiter <laughs> and more ghoulish looking. 
Um, this is silly, but like towards the end, well, during the will reading scene, I was I which honestly is thought a fantastically uh, shot scene. Oh yeah, it's like two. I, I think could, of the standout sequences in the movie because of Bauhaus's uh, lens work. I I thought he he had put on makeup to make himself look sicker for the family. <laughs> not not obviously the everyone's face changing shades depending on what was going on in the scene a lot of times. And then yeah, the sickness. Yeah, and this is after um Kurosawa's first color film with where uh one character has like ghoulish makeup that gets more and more grotesque in a very similar fashion. Uh, do which I don't know how popular it was outside of Japan. I just know like that was a big uh, misfire. Because if you ever seen Dodeskaden, like it's it's not the worst Kurosawa, but it's just it's an interesting failure. That's his first color. Yeah, that's his first color. For some reason, I thought it was the uh, the one that got the Russia one. No. Um, oh, Kagamusha? Think, yeah. No. Okay. The Russian one is in color, too. I know. Does that come be after? Oh, uh, that, be- that was before, because that was his big resurgence, because he won an Oscar for the Soviet Union for that mm-hmm. movie. But I wonder, who, I wonder if Kursawa got that, or if, the, or if the Soviet government took it from him. Gonna go back in time. Change, change the timeline so that I'm right. Yeah. You wait and see. Oh, well, that, that's why I allowed George Lucas to help him. That's true. Anyway, yeah, so, uh, it's like the look of it, the, the ghoulish makeup, the, I love this look like that red suit that, um, uh, Whitey wears. Yeah, although, it's what? like a butler getup, or actually, it's more like what a chauffeur would wear. And it's just like it's like the the most red red I like I've ever seen. It's and it's I was like it it still manages to be kind of like almost fashionable, even though it's uh like supposed to be like this is you know uh, a a lower class person wears for their job. Yeah, he's he's dressed like a valet, something like that. But um, regarding the costumes, the costuming was done by Kurt Robb as well. And uh, in his book, uh, he writes about how before production got underway, Fassbender sat him down and showed him. And I'm going to read a uh, quotation here. He showed him what he refers to as, quote, a tearjerker starring Clark Gable set in the southern states and directed by one of his favorite filmmakers, Michael Curtis. And for the life of me, I cannot figure out what movie he's talking about uh, to the point that, like, I'm pretty sure he is misremembering because the description he provides kind of does sound like uh, Band of Angels, which was directed by Raoul Walsh, who was Hmm. also one of Fassbender's favorite filmmakers. So I think that might have been the film that Fassbender showed him. And... I mean, this movie makes visual reference to Band of Angels as well, and uh, also Morocco, and like probably a ton of other. Oh, of course, Leone's Spaghetti Westerns, and probably a ton of other stuff I'm overlooking. But like, this is a real cinephiles movie, 
in that respect. Um, but yeah, and, and Rob won a German film prize. It's like the German equivalent of the Oscar for his set design. Which, by the way, a lot of the sets in this movie are recycled from Leone's Spaghetti Westerns. I'd believe that. Because <laughs> it was this shot in Almeria, Spain. Knew it. Because looking at that, it's like, that, that's not Germany. That has to be Spain. That's <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely not Germany. <laughs> I was trying to figure out, because like, I figured, like, they, I figured like, they wouldn't fly to America. His movies were, like, were, were so quick to make, he wouldn't fly to America. Unless maybe he did. But, like, you know, he, he worked so much. It's like, I figured he, it must have been in Europe somewhere. And spaghetti westerns were usually made in Spain, so I just kind of assumed. But uh, okay, one makeup touch that like is very effective that I need to bring up is the the young wife. She like actually gets more sick. Like her eyeshadow starts to look makes her look makes her look like a, makes like her face look like a skull towards the end. Yeah, and it's and it's just like really creepy and off-putting like every time she's on screen because like it's a very not so subtle symbol of like what's going to happen but also it's just uh it's it's my weird thing of like i hate seeing a face on a face or a face underneath a face like that's why i haven't seen the spider-man animated thing because like in a trailer i see his face behind a mask and i i can't just have like an aversion to yeah, if I could, like, uh, yeah, just, that's why I like, like clown makeup. Clown makeup is like, it's a face on a face that I can't, I can't deal with that. Well, speaking of faces, uh, we've talked about the, uh, the, ma- the use of makeup on the, uh, wealthy white family in this movie, but this movie also has blackface. Oh, it does? Was that sarcasm? Yes, it was. Okay. (laughs) Because the first moment I saw saw her, I was like, that's Mr. Popo from Dragon Ball Z. This is blackface. Oh my god, yeah. Yeah, so this movie movie opens (laughs) with a mammy character. Yeah, it does. Is uh, Marpessa, the family cook, and Whitey's mother. Now, there's a lot of... There's, like, a lot of conflicting information about the like so the, uh, that character is played by elaine baker and i have encountered a lot of writing that says you know she is a white actress and she is in blackface i've also encountered a lot of writing that says that she is a, a black actor who similar to how the the uh, uh the white actors have this very exaggerated white paint on their face that that she has this exaggerated black paint on her face I have not been able to figure out what is correct. And I think part of the confusion has to do with the fact that there seems to be multiple actor actors named Elaine Baker who were active uh, within the same time frame. So I'm not really sure what is going on. It's that, that's my first simple. That's the first moment I was like, I don't know if I'm going to like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> very understandable reaction yeah yeah also uh i want to clarify i i'm not okay with mr popo and dragon ball z even as a child it's just i found it deeply off-putting yeah understandable 
Yeah, it's like I'm glad Pokemon changed Jinx design because Jinx was originally had oh black God, skin, yeah. a purple skin. Jeez, yeah. it's really fucked up just how entrenched this stuff is in our culture and nobody questions it. Yeah, like I watched a fair amount of anime, but uh, black characters anime, is it a good chance it's going to be not racist on purpose, but it'll be kind of lazy how they depict black people, if you know what I'm talking sure. about. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, so the black faces was just like, it's 1971, Fast yeah. ben, like Fassbender of all people, I, I I would think would would have known better. Well, it's kind of compounded by the fact that there isn't really a lot of director statements available, like, on this movie. Like, they're, like, you know, uh, like, this movie is very underseen and underwritten about in general like relative to many of Fossbinder's other films but there's also just not a lot of Fossbinder talking about this movie and that I've been able to find um I'm pretty sure he wound up disowning it um huh. and it was not so this it premiered at the Berlin Film F- Festival and it was not well received oh and I think at some point after that Fossbinder just kind of let it sink into obscurity obscurity yeah he he just didn't did didn't i as far as i can tell and maybe john or somebody else can mm. uh provide more insight but like he just didn't discuss it very often and there's uh, uh, there's just not a lot of information available as far as his thought process behind it or what his intentions were uh with the way that race is uh explored and visualized in this film so that's a little it, bit frustrating. Yeah, it's uh, it didn't have like the Django Unchained hateful eight thing of like, I'm helping talk about race, and it's like, no, you're not. It didn't feel <laughs> that cringy, but yeah. it it definitely bordered on it. Like I, I appreciated it didn't. I, I'm tired of shitting on Tarantino so much. I'm, I'm I'm glad it didn't have the the I'm black. I can say this. It didn't have the bad people say nigger the most approach. Because, like, the bad people, like, they're just racist, and you can, you just see how they're racist, and it's right. that, that simple. Uh, and I think, you know, Fassbender was someone who was um, interested in identity and performing identity and how different identities intersect. So I think there's a level of, of like, intentional artifice to this movie that the, the makeup plays into, but it's just, you know, obviously um, a very... Uh, controversial artistic choice. Yeah, it's and it's like his understanding of American racism is so surface level. There's no nuance or it just felt like he he had basic like he talked to a couple Americans about this and was like, okay, I got it. And it just, it just feels it's a so surface level and so basic. And like it it. Like it's kind of like how um with uh Lars Lars von Trier when he makes movies about America, you're like you watch it as American, you're like he doesn't he's he doesn't understand America at all, or and like it has that feeling to it. Or it's well, like he does Fassbender doesn't get doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, and like I'm not even sure that Fassbender was all that concerned about making a comment on America because like 
this movie, uh, like a lot of his other films, uh, this movie is very pre- preoccupied with like how people manipulate each other and how how uh, uh, people use pow- exploit power to um, control and oppress others. And I think he just, for whatever reason, wanted to use the American South, like post Civil War, as a backdrop for the story. But like I, if you watch this movie, like it doesn't really, it doesn't, it to me at least, it doesn't feel like the race aspect is the thing that he is most interested in. Yeah, but that brings up the problem of then. Don't make it. Don't include yeah. that at all, because <laughs> like that's that's a really heavy topic, right? To, and that to... goes speaks to your point about how he obviously like it's a very surface level exploration because he was not thinking about what you're you know what what you're talking about. He was he wasn't thinking about um the, uh, it, it doesn't seem like he really thought through the implications of what he was doing. Let's say. No. Joel, thoughts? Um, another question. Did, you said we were trying to, to cast the main actors whose name I keep forgetting. Gunter Kaufman. Gunter. Gunter. See, as you, as you remember, Gunter Kaufman. Anyways, um, he was trying to win his favor basically by giving him roles uh, as, sure, yeah. when he could find him in this lead role. Uh, is there any sense that he might have written this movie entirely for him? Yeah. Okay. Like I so. like I said, like this this movie was intended to be a vehicle for him. I I feel like I can see that um, excusing the the big misses with race and and other things that he's covering in that thing because. Okay, but then you can say, why did he want this vehicle for his black lover to be about slavery? <laughs> uh, well, he, I guess he couldn't think of another damn thing for... No, I don't know. It, it was probably a combination of things, right? Like, he, he made it uh, different kinds of movies. Like, he, he was experimental with genres and other things like that. So, like, yeah. had he done a Western before this? I don't. No. Yeah. This was his sole... Uh, Western experiment. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that was part of it jealous. too. Like he just wanted to do t- do his own spin on this on this genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. Um, yeah, I can't. I can't comment in any other way than you guys have already talked about when it comes to what it's trying to discuss or what it's not doing. Like I. I honestly only thought about race in context of like the blatant, you know, actions of racism in the movie. I wasn't thinking that we were trying to make any sort of statement. I, it was weird to me. Like, it had more to do with the idea. Yeah, the idea of like a good slave owner and what you know, a loyal slave might look like, but... Or just um, hatred and greed in the way that that people um, hurt each other. 
I mean, that, again, that's like a classic Fassbender theme. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that fits right in with, back to Chinese roulette. And, and Fox, Fox and his and friends, his friends, for yeah. God's sake. And many, sake. many yeah. others. Yeah. Yeah, this Fassbender guy wasn't so bad, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's... He's... Uh, <laughs> it's... Like I want to clarify, I don't. I didn't hate this. It's it's not like it was unwatchable. It's just it was weirdly boring. Cause it just, yeah, I can it, see that. It's a very it, uh, deliberately paced film, I'll say. Yeah, and that's like, something that they. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And just there's a lot of Gunter's gonna look intensely at someone moments, and it's like he can't do this. And there's way too much of that. Especially towards the end, it just is a lot of like he's gonna look intensely at someone, and it's gonna be quiet, and nothing happens. And I, I know what's supposed to, I know what's supposed to be, but like, it, it, he's just not a leading man. Like, mm-hmm. and it just, it just by the end of the movie, I'm just kind of, I'm not feeling anything. I'm just feeling like kind of like, is it over yet? Yeah. I didn't. I mean. Uh, I think I appreciate this movie slightly more than the both of you do, but like for me, a lot of that appreciation has to do with again uh, that this movie is just gorgeous to look at, um, and that final shot of Whitey and Hannah dancing alone in the desert, yeah, is just stunning. Uh, you could print that and frame it and hang it on your wall. Um, but uh, regarding the pacing of the film. And, and the way that uh, shots just kind of linger. Um, mm-hmm. They, uh, Phantom of DVD uh, of this movie, which has long been out of print, unfortunately, but you could probably get it through your local library. There is a commentary on that DVD with Uli Lamel and Michael Bauhaus that is, in my opinion, essential listening. Uh, it's just super fascinating. They talk a lot about the making of the film. Um, but one of the things that Lamel talks about is that, you know, Fassbender would often tell him that um, he he felt like a lot of filmmakers, particularly American filmmakers, like working in Hollywood, that they there was too much like. Uh, how should I describe this? Their, their films are like too busy like there was just too much going there's too much going on to like attention grab and dazzle people um and that he felt like there wasn't any time for people to actual to for the viewers to um consider what they were watching to really think about things and it was important for him to leave that breathing room for the viewer to uh be able to contemplate every scene that they were watching and that is part of the reason why he is so big on um, these lingering shots and, and uh, uh, you know, pacing that really takes its time. Because uh, he wanted people to think about what they were watching and kind of apply it to their own lives. And, and maybe they could start to reconsider how they how they view the world and engage with other people. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think I think part of my just like boredom with this comes from like i've seen some movies i've seen um betty movies i've seen like the melvin Van people movies around this time and it's just like 
yeah. th- there there's better movies than this that are about similar topics and yeah. cover similar uh ideas and just like and just like include it's a problem with like um well, like red hook summer spike lee movies like that movie introduces pedophilia like half an hour before the end and barely discusses it and this is like about race on but like we can't just introduce race in a uh offhanded way and then be like it's actually about this because it's right it's a so loaded and complex right and that's what i that's what i meant when i thought that like fassbender obviously was not thinking in those terms yeah uh yeah and just but, but like the family dynamic stuff like i found some review i think with letterbox someone said it's like teorama and mandingo <laughs> which is like the biggest gap of like teorama is like five out of five perfect to me and mandingo is i think uh like a one out of five piece of garbage mm. uh Adriel, have you seen mandingo no it's a slavery movie about boxing and it's i think it sucks but uh other people like it i guess the sequel has pam greer in it and uh it's not it's equally as shitty (laughs) (laughs) i uh if i may go back to the the uh, reasoning behind those (laughs) holding on to the scenes a bit longer like if his intention was for people to have a moment to think about and kind of analyze what they just saw, like that is, um, okay, Polu. Um, it feels like the, and I don't want to say the opposite. I'm thinking, trying to think of a better word for it, but it like, you don't think it, it worked. That he was you know, successful. like in a play, that works like the breaks in between plays and stuff like that. You just, you get a breather to be like, Whoa, all these things happened. Um, and like this movie as a play, I think it'd be a per- perfectly reasonable way to, to get just all this, the things on stage because not much. Um, I wouldn't say the uh, sets are, are so much different that it's going to be difficult for, a production to do what they did here. Uh, but yeah, like just think of the way that as a movie watcher and critic and such like that, like, do you, how do you do that yourself when you're watching a movie? Like, I think we all have our own method. Like if I really think that there was stuff that I, I didn't get the first time, like it's, it's a rewatch situation and, I'll pause and stuff like that. And I know back then you're not pausing the film reel to think about stuff or anything like that. But I think that multiple viewings is another way that we typically share that kind of stuff. Right. Um, And uh, if you're like me, you rely on smarter people like you, Adriana, to explain things to me. (laughs) I don't really know that I'm all that great at explaining things, but. Yeah, you've been doing pretty damn good, you know. I, I just met you on the other podcast, but I think you've been doing pretty damn good. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. Your check is in the mail. No, wait. It should be the other <laughs> way around. Uh, anyways, that's... So, like, 
And another way, like if you're reading the film without that context, which we mean Spencer at least were uh, this time when we watched it, uh, like to at least to me, Spencer, I don't know mm-hmm. about you. I think I felt like we were supposed to be reading something about his reaction or whoever else's reaction that we held on. And like just the kind of like soullessness of, of some of the people in the movie. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like the, honestly, like the last half hour is, I have notes and like, if I didn't write her notes, I wouldn't remember it except for like the, the killing part. And Joel didn't even remember that. <laughs> no, no, I was making a joke when I okay. said that. Okay. <laughs> what killing? No. Uh, uh, like, so. I don't know. That's. The, what, the thing what, is, like, I. I obviously I appreciate this movie more than you guys, but like I do not feel compelled to defend it or make a counterpoint argument (laughs) (laughs) because I completely I completely understand your struggle with the film. Yeah, I don't. Hmm. What what would you consider the second half starting, Spencer? Uh, I'll see if my notes. It's like exactly forty five minutes in. Yeah, I guess. Like after Dad kills the Mexican lover. Yeah, I was just gonna say, like when uh, when he kills. It, was that a guy in brown face, or was that like a Spaniard? I'm not um, sure. Fossbender was definitely in brown face. Oh yeah, I thought that I, was just his face, which is dirty in a lot of his movies. But it looks like several shades darker to me. That's true. Maybe he got some bronzer. It's like all oh, the sun in Spain, you know, it's just making me so tan. All right, yeah, let's I mean, film the next scene. Yeah, he's a pasty German. He probably was uh, a burn up. That's true. That's true. I take back my joke. Yeah, I mean, that's if he was playing in brownface, though, it, would be, it is kind of funny for him to be the one that starts the, uh, you know, who's that N word, you know, and yes. the, that ends with a couple of them beating him up. Yeah. Which you brought up, like, uh, like speaking. I gotta find your exact text. <laughs> I said, speaking of directors that cast themselves and then say the N word, <laughs> but this is watchable, and Pulp Fiction is not watchable because that part is supposed to be a joke, <laughs> and it's not funny and ruins for me. Taints that movie. Yep. Yep. I don't know why Jules wouldn't just reach back and slap the man as hard as he could. Yeah, that because he's written by Quentin Tarantino. That is true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to think of like other things. If there's any, I made like a whole list of bullet point topics and things that I wanted to address, but I think I've gotten to all of them. All right, so the so the wife is a new wife. She's not the mother of those kids, correct? Correct. Yes, she is. She is Ben's second wife, so his sons are from a previous marriage. And by the okay. way, the wife uh, was, is played by um, her name is Katrin uh, Shaka. I think that's how you say it. I'm not exactly sure. But she was married to Uli Lamel, so she is playing her husband's stepmother. Oh, okay. 
Which kissing? seems like one of those like perverse jokes that Fassbender <laughs> would play on yeah. his actors. I was, um, were they once kissing in at one part? Yes. Okay. He was like ravishing her on the couch. It's like after they are uh, taunting Whitey by like mm-hmm. making him pick up a plate of uh, candy that's like right in front of them and serving it to them. And then they just like keep ringing the bell every time he goes back into the kitchen. So he has to come out again. Yeah. Uh, and there's that one part where the two the, the two boys blended in my head where like the dad where the mom's like oh he he's beating the son because he was peeping and was having sex and yeah, saw that, and saw that he, was, and saw he can't get it up that was davy the the other okay. son played by harry bear and then whitey um takes his place he he wants to be whipped in davy's place to spare davy and there's like that that's another that's an interesting interesting thing like there's some uh, like interesting subversive elements in this movie, like the homoeroticism, but also there's like a the family has this sadomasochistic streak going on where the father clearly enjoys whipping people, and Whitey seems to enjoy being whipped. Yeah, that felt like which that yeah goes back to what you were talking about. <laughs> that and the, like elements of like is this is this race play weird shit? Ooh, which. Uh, if you're if if you're kink kinks or whatever for like let do what you do but race play is something that's like that's fucked up and weird in my personal opinion yeah most of us are fine with it no but yeah <laughs> it is fucked up and weird yeah and like it's parts of this movie it's felt like is this like a weird race play fantasy yeah, which again is like complicated further by the fact that Fassbender was like involved with Gunter Kaufman. Yeah, like it, it's um, it, like it's very obvious the way he filmed him in like all the shots. It's like like he, he's in lust with this man. Yeah, and that was kind of like the situation with a lot of people in their group. It, like everybody was kind of like fascinated with Gunter, and there was definitely like some racial fetishization at play like in in kurt rob's book there's some weird uh paragraphs that like horny paragraphs he writes about uh like gunter's skin and yeah it's uh it's really kind of uh uncomfortable so yeah i I think you are not wrong Hmm. to read into some of that stuff yeah, and I, that's on my mind lately because I just wrote a thing on uh, Watermelon Man and uh, Con, Con Comes to Harlem and Watermelon Man has a scene about like fascinating black men, so like it's kind of fresh in my mind. That's one I haven't seen. I've seen The Watermelon Woman, which I really love. But oh, That's a really uh, good movie. That's one I want to talk about, but I don't want to just be, be me and Joel because I think that's wrong. Yeah. two straight guys to talk about that movie. Uh, thought you meant because I wasn't black. No, because it's about lesbians, and it's like, on our opinion, it, and like the erasure of like black lesbians specifically from mm. like film canon, but also just like the historical record in general. Yep. Yeah, that's on my short list of movies of like, uh, of like. We 
I need to find the right person to discuss it with because I, 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 I won't. I can't talk about that. Just me and J Dog. Any, yeah. Uh, but I, uh, Watermelon Man is incredible. It's a very main sa uh, satire, and uh, it's, it's like a Twilight Zone episode. Except, wait, is that the movie where the white man turns into a black man? Yes. Yes, I have seen that. I have seen that movie actually. Ah, okay. it's, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, and the Sam's referring to is the part where he's fucking the Norwegian woman, and uh, <laughs> and he's like, "Come on, just say it." And she and she calls him uh, nigger, and he's like, "See, now you're a real American," <laughs> which I love that joke so much <laughs> because it's a uh, very whatever. Then that movie deals with a lot of heavy stuff, but yeah, that movie's so good. Anyway, yeah. So um, anything left about Whitey? Uh, uh, no, I think I've covered all the all the stuff I wanted to cover. Um. Uh. Okay. Uh, okay. One last thing I'm I'm curious about the um, uh, the 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 sex worker who's also sings at the bar. Yeah, Hannah. Is her singing supposed to be bad on purpose? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure. Got to be honest. Because whole times like I can't tell if this is a if this is like a weird end joke that I'm not getting, or maybe or maybe like I just don't know what good singing is. No, it's definitely it uh, it's not great singing. I'll put it that way. Like Which I don't want to speak uh, ill of Hannah Shigula. She's my favorite um, female actor in the Fassbender stable. Although I love Margaret Carsonson as well, but yeah, she uh, she's no Ingrid Coven, I'll say, when it comes to singing. Mm. Who not... Ing Ingrid Coven is another Fassbender actor who was a cabaret singer and oh, good. Um, yeah. Uh, who else is there? Uh... I think maybe the singing is just supposed to. It's it's just like part of the sort of. Uh, I don't know, like, uh, what's the term? Like, the, there's, like, a whole kind of, like, reprobate, reprobate vibe going on in the saloon. And so this sort of just, like, not very great singing just seems to fit hmm. the whole, the tenor of that Yeah, like, uh, this came up, oh, this came up last season, but. I don't really like spaghetti westerns in general. Neither do I. And uh, this just adds more fuel to a fire of like, maybe Leone is the only person who made good ones because I have not, re I have never enjoyed any that are not made by Leone. <laughs> and that includes like Django, original Django, which I I find to be it's the first half is great, second half is just like I don't I don't care anymore. I yeah, won't. So yeah. Not a good movie. <laughs> I mentioned this in the last episode, but I'm just not a, a Western person in general. Hmm. Like, there are some that I like, but overall, it's not my genre. Yeah. Uh, Joel, did, did you like this as a Western? Or do you not really care? I hardly recognize it as a Western. Like... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh... 
like I don't even know if I'd recommend this to people. This is as more as like like if I'd like, recommend it to people who are already pretty familiar with Fossbinder. Um, just as, you know, like a more obscure Fossbinder film that, you know, if you if you want to branch out and uh watch some of his deeper cuts, I would I would recommend it. It you know, if for no other reason than it's a great showcase for Michael Bauhaus and Kurt Robb, who again are like two of my favorite Fossbinder related people. Um, yeah, and uh, you mentioned like how how Gunter was like fetishized by like the Fassbinder crew. Was yeah. the Moroccan actor I forgot his name? I always forget. El Hedy Ben Salim. Yes, was he also like highly fetishized by them for being like an exotic foreigner? Um, honestly, probably, but like, like from what I've read and seen, like not to the same extent. Interesting. Because, because uh, he, uh, well, his life was a lot more uh, dramatic. Yeah. Which, not enough time to get into that, but uh, maybe because he, from what I read, he seemed just to be like an unstable, erratic person. And yeah. So maybe that. Maybe that uh, tied into that. And Fassbender certainly didn't help. <laughs> yeah, <What? I> read... <laughs> every time I read about like Fassbender's personal life at all, it's like, oh, this guy just needed constant drama. <laughs> yeah, it really feels like, which which some people need, which some people are like that, but like Fassbender seems like the type of person like most like most people would not want to deal like we're not one again false with on a level he is seeming yeah. like too chaotic he thrived on conflict and loved uh pitting people against each other uh you just got a, a kick out of the drama that would arise from it yeah and and that that is uh that's something that lamel and bauhaus discuss in the whitey commentary as well all of the very dysfunctional group dynamics going on yeah, like, that, you know, Fassbinder encouraged and provoked. Yeah. Like, was he like, what was he an asshole like Sam Peckinpah or was he? I, asshole. Like Fassbinder was a very mercurial person hmm. and he, he, he had like different sides that would come out at different times. So like a, a lot of, a lot of, um, the people in Fassbender's orbit talk about how he had this way of making you feel so seen and validated and that, you know, he could really talk you up and make you feel like you could do anything, but then he could turn around and like cut you down in an instant. And he always knew exactly how to turn the screws and which buttons to push for every person. So, you know, he could be incredibly sweet, uh, and attentive, or he could be an absolute bastard. He was a really complicated person. So just saying, yeah. like, Fassbender was an asshole, yeah. I feel like is reductive, but he certainly wasn't a saint, but then, like, who is? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I don't I don't mean that to be, like, he's a bad person, because, like, Sam Peckinpah was, like, all I know about his reputation was he was just, he loved conflict, and he seemed to be kind of a dick to a lot of people. Okay. That, well, that, does, like... that does kind of also apply to Fassbender, so... Yeah, did the Fassbender also wear white jeans and had a, a hemorrhoid problem? <laughs> uh, well, I 
can't speak to the latter, but like, yeah, he did. I mean, occasionally I wear white jeans. I've seen oh. photos of him in white jeans. Cliff Peckinpah apparently liked to wear white jeans, even though he would bleed through them. <laughs> oh Jesus! Yeah, he he had like I don't I, think it was I, I, I do, do not really Paul know was. much about Peckinpah at all. Like I've only seen straw. Well, actually, I was about to say I've only seen Straw Dogs, but I don't think that's true. I think I've seen no. other films by him. Because I remember like Melanie Daniels on one episode of uh, Cinema Parlor, she was reading his biography, and like he liked to wear light colored jeans but he had a problem of like something would i think was bleeding through some orifice on his lower half and it would show through his white like white pants all the time and like he wow. seemed he seemingly didn't give a shit or he liked the attention or something but yeah he was he was kind of a weird guy sam pack and paw Let's see. Uh, yeah, that's. Oh, um, so. Uh, since uh, Alexander. No, fuck. I did. I did it again. Too many people. We have too many people with long names that start with A. <laughs> Adriana. You can call um, me whatever you want, Spencer. Okay, just not late for dinner. <laughs> uh, but uh, um, so at, at this point in Fastbender's career, like, what? Uh, what, what what preceded Whitey, and what like do you know the story of like how, how or why he, pick, got uh, why he picked this uh, project? Uh well, as far as what preceded Whitey, um, uh, the film, like chronologically, the film that came before Whitey was a TV movie called Pioneers in Ingolstadt, which is not widely available. It's like pretty hard to see. It is on YouTube, I think, last I checked, but I don't, I can't remember if that upload includes English subtitles, but if you go digging on the internet, you should be able to find Pioneers in Ingolstadt. Um, and then Whitey was, so, okay, at this at the point that uh, production began on Whitey in 1970, um, Fassbender had only been making feature films for about two years. Because Love is Colder Than Death, which was his debut feature, was in 1969. Um, so actually, that's that's really just like a year. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about right, Whitey's release date, which was 1971. Um, but yeah, so he, he hadn't been making films for very long, but, but Whitey w- was already like his 10th movie. Like, if you count his features, uh, his TV films, and he had, like, a te- at this point, one televised play, The Coffee House. If you count all of those, Whitey is the 10th project. So it's a, it's a te- let's just say it's the 10th project he worked on since his debut film. Uh, so, you know, that really s- illustrates John's point about how mm-hmm. dizzyingly uh, productive he was, because that's a lot, a lot of work in a very short period of time. And I agree with John again that the the quality of, of these films up to this point is not consistent. Now, after, you know, with the with Merchant of Four Seasons and the start of uh, Fassbender's melodrama period, that's when you just get banger after banger after banger. Just like uh, incredibly consistent consistently high quality films um but 
at the point he was making Whitey, it was kind of more of a, a mixed bag. Um, but yeah, so he had already made a lot of stuff uh, before shooting Whitey. And as far as the the inspiration behind it, I think, like, I, I kind of already covered that. Like, a lot of it had to do with he, he wanted to give Gunter Kaufman this this gift of a feature role or a a leading role. And I think uh and maybe somebody listening, maybe John or somebody else listening can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Bauhaus somehow knew someone who had access to these Leone sets in Spain. And so Fassbender was like, great, we'll shoot a movie in Spain. And I guess I don't know, he must have been inspired by that setting um that but that that is just speculation on my part okay yeah um uh, going back to the uh uh race stuff with gunter he's in gods of the plague which i've seen uh that's one of the i think that's one of the godard ones that i don't like yeah i'm not a fan either but yeah that's definitely like fassbinder trying to do his best Godard impression like that and love is colder than death and yeah, the American but, uh, soldier. But Gunter plays a, plays a character named Gunter Gorilla in that movie, which is so like, I, I didn't know yep. he was black at the time, but now it's like, really, <laughs> really? You're going to do that. Okay. Well, Fassbender also once referred to Kaufman as my Bavarian Negro. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's i have to say like <laughs> they're you know for as uh like progressive or left-leaning as a lot of these people were the they definitely had major blind spots to do with race and you can see that even and there was a documentary that came out a number of years i think it was like 2011 about uh al ben salim and there's interviews with some of the fassbender players like that were you know shot for the documentary so it was like modern times and the way they talk about uh El Hedi Ben Salim and just it like it's really gross like there was definitely this um feeling that they were cultured and civilized Germans and like the Arabs coming over were like they needed to be like handled with a firm hand like it, it's 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 really like bizarre to watch hmm. um so yeah there's there's definitely a lot of uncomfortable racial stuff underpinning some of these films and certainly like the group dynamics hmm, you yeah. <laughs> I'm not surprised, but it's also one of those. I like, mean, I'm not either, but it's just yeah, disappointing. Yeah, it's disappointing. Such like, yeah, I'm tired of hearing this, <laughs> this, this thing, same thing over and over again. But oh, what are you gonna do, Joel? You've been quiet for a while. Um, would you recommend, um, Whitey? I think to somebody who is into film, yeah, I would, I would recommend it as something something you should see just because it is it's odd like um you know if especially if you've seen um 
the more famous Fassbender stuff, um, you're going to watch this and be like, oh, um, you know, like I could see, I mean, he's literally in the movie, but it's, uh, I think, I think it's worth seeing because of that. And also just because it's hard to get. So that usually, Hmm, I mean, that doesn't usually, there's some movies that are hard to get that there's no reason nobody, anybody needs to watch them. But I I feel like, if this was the worst Fastbender, it's at least it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't think it's the worst Fastbender, but it's definitely like I'm, nowhere near yeah. the top. Yeah, like it's it's better than the Godar ones, but also I don't like Godar, so that's not saying much for me. Mm. So, would you rather watch this or Breathless? Uh, original Breathless or Richard Gear Breathless? Not Richard Gear Breathless. Uh, yeah. I off flip a coin on that one. Okay. I'd say Breathless just because there's good actors in it. <laughs> um, there's well, good there's actors good in actors movie. in this movie, too. It's just, just not, not. Yeah. The material's not there. Yeah. I'm, well, Breathless is, is breezy and quick, and you do get. Um, the great scene with um Melville as the asshole I'd say an asshole again, but as like the pompous director guy that's mm. I think is really funny. He wrote a book. No. Yeah. Uh yeah. So but otherwise, like I, I would if somebody was into Westerns, I wouldn't say check out this one. <laughs> I, I wouldn't uh just toss it on when uh, I was hanging out with family or something. Um, <laughs> I can imagine that. <laughs> Joel, what 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 the hell did you put on here? It's interesting. Watch. I mean, that's the same reaction I get from putting on Quincy's Quest, and that's a, in my opinion, a million times better than most of the movies we watch. Oh, I recently learned that the star of Quincy's Quest, Tommy Steele, mm-hmm. isn't a nice person. There's a Twitter thread of like celebrity you met who was nice, and a celebrity you met who was rude. A lot of people put Tommy Steele as the one who was rude. Yeah. Don't know anything about him other than, you know, he's a popular musician in, in England. And, yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe Quincy's Quest uh, made him real pompous. Yep, because it was, it was the worldwide hit. Every, it was on the lips of every person. Yeah. That's why it's entirely on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thought there was a Blu-ray. No, wait, I think there's a Kino disc of it but i might be wrong about that no i I have a copy of a dvd that was like somebody made (laughs) that's i'm positive i saw it somewhere as like a blu-ray or or dvd i gotta look it up you're lucky we're at the end of this podcast because otherwise we'd have to stop the entire (laughs) thing okay and i forgot to say it's the beginning episode but trans rights are human rights for recording this Actually, two days after Fassbender's birthday, yeah, two days after, he would have been, I'm, I forgot, what, check what year he was born. Uh, he was born in 40, I want to say 45, I believe. Okay, so I can't do quick math like that. 70s, yeah, 80s? Yeah, May 31st, 1945. Yeah, okay, yeah, so, yeah, uh, 70s or 80s, I don't feel like doing the math right now, and, uh, it's also Pride Month, which I guess this whole uh, um, season is like a, 
Pride season, kind of, because it's on the way to far talking about queer cinema. So, uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah, uh, get involved politically. Uh, if you, if you sit around and do nothing, you're helping the, the, the people who want to want to take away your rights and ruin this, ruin everything even more. Yep. Not being articulate. Get involved. Don't, 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 don't sit around. That's all I'm saying. Educate yourself on what's going on. Even though it's depressing as fuck a lot of times, educate yourself on what's happening. It's important to know. Don't look away. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and that includes local politics. So that's the, that's the politics that will affect you the most directly. You know, I, I, feel I, like I don't lot, know. A, a lot of people forget that. No. Absolutely. Uh, and I was just gonna, I want to give a shout out to the Eastern PA Trans Equality Equity Project. I'm, uh, I live in Eastern Pennsylvania and uh, it's a really great organization and there's volunteer opportunities. So if anyone listening uh, is also like in Eastern PA or thereabouts, uh, I definitely encourage you to go to patransequity.org and you can donate or get involved as a volunteer. Uh, you know, trans people are, uh, you know, an extremely vulnerable population in the United States, and they are under some pretty serious uh, a- attack legally in this country and socially as well. So yeah. I think we need to do what we can um, and, to help. And on this topic, there's a wrestler, Nick Gage, who's a deathmatch wrestler, does like the, the bloody matches. And his persona is like a big tough guy, like he won't take shit for anyone, but he's uh, he's not the guy you would expect to be to come out as like trans trans rights are human rights. But he's a very big on that right now, and his way of saying it is like uh, I forgot the video, but like to paraphrase, he's like if you don't support trans rights, you're a fucking piece of shit. You should die. Which is kind of his <laughs> his way of talking, which uh, I want a certain level. I'm like, yeah, he's right, <laughs> and uh, he he does this like throughout the whenever there's some big surge of bills, usually he'll come out and be like, this is fucked up, and you and you're a fan of mine, and you support these bills, you're not you're not really a fan. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> and it's like, oh, this is this is great. I didn't expect him to actually be <laughs> on the right side of things. Uh, are we gonna do like a oh I'm sorry what were you gonna say yeah I haven't talked about wrestling on a show in a while anyway that's it oh what what are you gonna say oh are we gonna do a like a film recommendation section again okay great because I I have one (laughs) okay oh and then uh, the uh, uh, I probably forgot to say it the last scene of Whitey when they dance together feels like just simply visually when the, the two people are dancing together at the end of solo which oh yeah ties, which sure. ties in two i want the next episode we do to be the terama redo so we have a little break so we have two so we two fast benders one pasolini then end on two fast benders sounds good and uh joel i think you're down for doing for giving Teorama, uh, a reevaluation. 
Yes. And po- maybe add another Pasolini in there. But the uh, main thing will be Tehran because that movie's perfect in my yeah, mind. You know, you had a perfect opportunity to, to make a Pasolini season. But, uh, uh, I, I don't have the money to pay for a $200 box set. Since when? I mean, I well, I could, but I'm just using that money for college. You can find those movies online. I mean, I think some of them are on the Criterion Uh, channel. Some are. A couple are on YouTube. Uh, Also, we covered enough Pasolini last season, so like it's not too much much repeats. Right. Like, there's a movie I want to cover this season, but I was like, oh, that's that's next season thing because of the director. It's a movie with uh, Fernando Ray in it. I want his one his rare English language movies. And if you know what that movie is, then um, you I can figure not. out it's Quintet. Oh, okay. Yeah, but we're saving it for next season. Uh, hint for what next season will be. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah, that's oh, yeah. Okay, so I I, I got uh. Two quick ones for 71 for Whitey and for and I have some for 76 because I this is supposed to I guess it is Chinese Relight episode to text sort of but I have only two for 76 so the quick ones for 71 are Shiver of the Vampire uh, genre one it's poetic and beautiful and I love genre one a whole lot if you don't don't tell me he's one of those people like Wes Anderson that people have seem to have visceral reaction to in my experience so uh don't tell me if you don't like genre on no it's i love fine. genre on so no danger <laughs> i'm just not saying that to people listening i don't i don't want to hear uh your bullshit i don't care i like it and the other one is the velvet vampire yes. which ties into my next pick because about Vel- Vel- vampire is a it's a vampire movie set in the American desert. I don't remember that much about it, besides it's interesting and strange. And there's Chimotic. a lot of... Yeah, and, and queer. A, oh, yeah. And there's a lot of um, very on-the-nose references to vampire lore. Like, what's a character named uh, Lefanu, which is a very obvious reference to vampire literature in the 19th yeah, century. Yeah, Sheridan. Oh, I think that was his name. The guy who wrote Carmilla. Yeah. And one of the cast members is Mike is Michael um Blodgett. Uh Blond Blonchet? I never had to say it out loud. He was in a, a Russ Meyer movie, and my seventy six pick is up, the Russ Meyer movie that I dearly love. It's uh it's it's uh Who Done It, I guess. I don't know. It's a Russ Meyer comedy, so it's big boobs. It's uh, it's like a live action Looney Tunes, but sex jokes, and it's it's Russ Meyer. It's uh, hard to really put into words. Besides, it's fantastic. And other one is uh, the witch who came from the sea. I don't remember too much about it. Besides, it's I found it effective and upsetting, and it's just a kind of a strange movie. But uh, I just remember I really dug it, and they're, yeah, it's a very effective movie. 
Alright, whose turn is it next? Your turn. Alright, well I'm going to break the rule because my recommendation is not from 1971, but it is Fassbender adjacent. Which is why I chose it. And also because the movie just recently turned up on Tubi out of the blue when it was very, very hard to see previously. So I just thought I'd take the opportunity to plug Sheer Madness from 1983, uh, directed by a new German cinema icon, Margareta Fontrada. And it stars Hannah Shigula, who we see in Whitey and many, many other Fassbender films. Uh, and uh, Angela Winkler, who stars in Fontrada's uh, film, The Lost Honor of Katerina Bloom, which is really, really good if you haven't seen it. I highly recommend it. Um, but Sheer Madness is about this very intense friendship that develops between these two women who are played by Shugula and uh, Winkler and how their relationship, as it starts to become... Um, more and more intense. Uh, it just really unnerves, unnerves and enrages like the men in their lives. And uh, I'd like to write an essay on this movie at some point, but it feels very much in conversation with the writing of Adrian Rich and Lillian Faderman, who both wrote extensively about the concept of compulsory heterosexuality and, like, the agency and power that comes from women routing, um, like, their emotional and erotic desire away from men and towards other women. And this idea of romantic friendship and so forth. Um, uh, but, so it is, like, very much preoccupied with those ideas. It's, it's a, but it's a very powerful and moving film with, with two really stunning uh, lead performances. And it's shot by Michael Bauhaus. So it looks gorgeous. Uh, and uh, again, that is on Tubi. So you can watch it for free. Okay. Yeah, Tubi is the best. Better than Criterion, in my opinion. You shut your pie hole. No. You know what? They all have their things. It's free and has everything. It doesn't have... Yeah, but like you do have to kind of dig to find the gems. I like yeah. I like doing that. It doesn't have the uh, short films by that guy whose name I'm forgetting. Well, I replaced Criterion with wrestling, which is more important to me. Understandable. <laughs> That's why I replaced vegetables with cake. It's more important to me. Um, if I are are you is that all you have, Adriana? Yeah, that's all I have. All right. That's okay. So, 1971 is one of those years. Like, we've just killed a lot of the 70s, it seems like. Because Whitey and then um, Lizard in a Woman's Skin. That's my favorite Fulci. Murmur of the Heart. Oh, that's... Uh... Yep, that that that's a movie, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Daughters of Darkness. You see, mm -hmm. so we have covered a bunch of those things, and I've seen more than that. But I'm wondering how much 
I've talked about how much I haven't talked about. Like, for instance, I know I mentioned the Velvet Vampire on a previous episode, but uh, that doesn't really matter because I probably was like, uh, it's real good. <laughs> you should watch it. Um, so let's just go with the things everybody already knows about. Like, this is the year that Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory came out. A movie that my mother told me <laughs> That uh, when her and her aunt were kids, they they were younger, at least, uh, her and my aunt, her sister, went and saw it in the theater. And my aunt cried at the end of the movie because it was so different than the book and it really upset her. Hmm. So, <laughs> setting the standard for that movie, nonetheless, it, like it became family favorite. In fact, I think it is my brother Andy's favorite movie still to this day. Because, see, Gene Wilder being this charming but also, you know, a little little cuckoo character that you can't help but fall in love with. I don't know if how much of Gene Wilder's other work is like that. Although he is very easy to fall in love with in the movie season. Yeah. I like that the, the front flip thing was improvised. It wasn't. He didn't actually trip. It was just okay. Uh, no, no, no. Like he, he, he was part of the script. Yeah, one part of the script. So the reaction of people is a real reaction. Ah. Uh, it introduced me to that guy who drives around sharpening knives for people. I can't remember what that guy's called. Um. Uh. Also, to gave me my large blue women fetish. No, that's that's weird. I'm not gonna actually commit with that. Yeah, you should. <laughs> It's just a interesting collection of like colors and and set design and music and cinematography and costumes and Charlie if he's a good actor or a bad actor it doesn't matter you know it works it's all about Grandpa Joe anyways obviously so I don't know why you wouldn't have seen Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory maybe you need to watch it again if you already have just just say. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's it for you? I don't know. Okay. Mm. Yeah, I can't really think of something else on my list. Like, I think I've already talked about the Omega Man, which is a, you know, it's a science fiction movie starring Charlton Heston, so you're going to, that's already points up right there. But it has sure. a, it has a jazz, jazz soundtrack, jazz score. And it is black exploitation because uh, two two of the more major characters are um, a woman and her you know younger brother or whatever, and they stick out like a Thor sum, uh, a, a, a Thor sum, sore thumb. I hate it when I do that. I can't take it back. <laughs> and you talking about it? So let's make it worse. Yeah. No. I just, uh, you know, by saying I hate it and I can't take it back, it's like I'm expecting people to be able to empathize with that feeling, not not saying it as in, like, I'm worried people are going to remember this. If anything, I want people to remember that I am uh, goofishly endearing yeah. and a millionaire. Triples um, are best. <laughs> I feel like maybe we should point out, like, that... 
Melvin Van Peebles' Sweet Sweetback's Badass mm. song came out in 1971. So yes. if you want a film that, like, a very, like, exciting, like, challenging avant-garde film that explores race very well, I would suggest watching that movie. Yeah. It's uh, it's an art film. It's one of those movies you watch, it, like, you hear a legacy of it. And then my first time watching it, I was like, this is not what I expected at all. Because it's, uh, I remember Martin Kessler saying, like, it seemed like people got the wrong lessons from it. It seemed like they only got like the sex and violence part yeah. and missed like the message part of it. <laughs> or just like how like wild and experimental it is stylistically. Yeah, like I've said this many times before, but I, I the best Godard inspired people were like um M. Betty and Van Peebles because like that, like a uh, Sweet Sweetback is just like a Godard style breathless kind of movie, but it's actually about something that matters. And it's like, oh, this is like what this is how it can be how you can use that style for something important and interesting. At least for to me. No, I totally agree. I haven't seen it. It's uh there's a really awkward sex scene in the yeah, beginning. That's all Involving his it. son. Yeah. yeah, that's it's not great, but like it's 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 pretty brief, and it's right at the beginning, if I recall correctly. So you get past it pretty quickly. Yeah, and well, uh, you know how I feel about children in sexual situations. Murmur of the heart. Yeah, that's uh, okay. okay. So there's one more thing. Um, Alice, sweet Alice, came out in 1976. I have not seen it, but there's a cast member in it who was in a movie we covered, Madam Satan. Um, it, it, Lillian Roth, I believe is her name. Mm. Uh, she is, I, I, I guess she's the old lady in Alice Sweet Alice. I don't know. But um, she's in Madam Satan as like the younger woman that the husband is having an affair with. Oh, the... the uh performer from the that's like a poor person right the, compared to the other one yeah the one who introduced wearing a mini skirt and dancing yes. around yeah and it's yeah and, and i didn't know she had such a wide range career like that like i remember when we recorded bobby was like yeah i yeah i recognized her i know i knew exactly who she was <laughs> which was like of course he would know that because it's because he's a uh big horror guy so like that just seems like something up his real house. Anyway, um, that's it. I write for Grumpire sometimes. I have an article on uh, Godfrey Cambridge uh, the, that came out last week. A very good article. Thank mm-hmm. you. Uh, that was like four years in the making, off and on. I'm, I'm, glad. I'm surprised I actually got it done. And I have another one coming up on Stormy Weather and why Stormy Weather is a punk movie. And I have some other ones in the works that haven't, that I'm kind of prepping one on The Baby, one of my favorite movies of all time, one of some recent African movies, and uh, some other. That's pretty much it. And I will be on Movies from Hell. Recording with them pretty soon, talking about the night comes for uh, 
What's that fucking movie called? The action movie from a couple years ago. The Night Comes from Us. Yes, there we go. That and um, Vengeance of an Assassin. Two recent action movies that are similar where one is actually great and one is kind of goofy and it doesn't work. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, that's it. So Grumpire and I'll be on Movies from Hell. Looking uh, forward to listening. Yeah, it it'll be fun, and I'm only I'm only doing that because the one host who hates action movies is gone. So when he's gone, other people come on and talk about things he doesn't like, and he would say no to. <laughs> also, Bradley, I hope you're doing well. If you hear this, anyway, that's it. Uh, J Dog, you have stuff. Negative. Cool. Perfect. Uh, Adriana? Uh, I don't really have anything to promote right now, other than, of course, uh, my show on Cinema Smorgasbord that I co-host with Doug Tilly and Liam O'Donnell called Bartell Me Something Good, and uh, you can probably guess from the title, but it is a podcast about the life and work of filmmaker Paul Bartell. Um, We just recently released an episode on um, Not for Publication, which uh, is not one of my favorite Bartell films. Um, but anyway, so that is available to listen to. Um, but I take forever to write, so I don't have any new writing to promote. Just the podcast. Okay. Oh, I, I forgot to mention, um, you can order shirts with the logo from the Godfrey Cambridge article that Andrew made. Uh, you can have that as a shirt and mug and other stuff. If you go to Andrew, I think T Public, Andrew's yeah. account. It's it's in the show notes. You can find it there. I ordered one, but uh, what else? Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, so Adriana, you'll be back for Terama and another mystery, um, uh, Pasolini film that has yet to be decided. And uh, J-Dog, we're going to be talking about cruising pretty soon. Oh, the hell movie, yeah. The movie, not not the activity. Unless, right. you, unless you want to. No, that's okay. Okay. Maybe and, later. Cool. Of course it's going to happen now. Yeah, that's it. Um, we're on Twitter and shit. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Adrian, thank you for your time, and uh, thanks see for you having guys. me on again. You're welcome. Our theme music is by James Fell. Our logo is by Andrew Bargeron. You can find him as Jemetsko on Threadless, TeePublic, Redbubble, Shirt Woot Catalog, and T-Theory. That is spelled G-I-M-E-T-Z-C-O. You can find our show in previous seasons on 
Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and other places where you can find podcasts.